Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. We ask that through the preaching of your word, you would light our way to faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the center of this passage is a conflict between Jesus and the Sadducees. So who are the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees emerge in the second century B.C. They're a group of wealthy aristocrats who are willing to cooperate with the Roman authorities, and in in return, the Sadducees get to keep their power. So the Sadducees are more interested in politics than theology. They are associated with the temple. They have a certain authority over the temple. They reject the oral tradition that had developed among the scribes and the Pharisees. They deny the existence of angels and other spirits. And as we read in verse 18, they also deny the resurrection. And so in this passage, they come up to Jesus and ask him a question about a controversial matter. And it's the matter that divides the dominant parties in Jerusalem. And it's the issue of resurrection. The Pharisees believe in resurrection, but the Sadducees do not. And so the Sadducees' question in verse 19 starts by referencing a marriage law in the Old Testament. So they say, verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they're referencing this law in the Old Testament, a law from Moses. So what are they talking about? What are they referring to? Well, this is the brother-in-law marriage in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. You're welcome to go read it if you want. But in sum, the law said that if a man died without a male heir, his brother 
was to marry the wife and have children so that the brother's name might be preserved and the property kept within the family. And so one application of this law that you might be familiar with is the book of Ruth, where you see this in play. And so the, the Sadducees go back to this law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and they think they've got him. They think they've got anyone who believes in the resurrection of the body. So they come up to Jesus, and they give him a test case. And the point of this is not to discredit Jesus so much. The point initially seems to be to discredit the doctrine of resurrection that Jesus taught and that the Pharisees also believed in. So they come up to Jesus and they basically say, Jesus, what if, what if in application to the law of Deuteronomy chapter 25, the woman's husband keeps dying and she has to keep marrying the next brother seven times? Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus answers their question, but his answer raises the issue to a different level, to a higher level, and reveals not only three errors that the Sadducees make, but three things that we must do to avoid the error of the Sadducees. And remember, the error of the Sadducees is denying the resurrection of the body. So the first thing you must do to avoid the error of the Sadducees is you must know the Scriptures. This is what we see in verse 24 when Jesus says, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know not the Scriptures. And so, in what way do they not know the Scriptures? Well, this is what Jesus is explaining in verse 26. When he says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so apparently in Jesus' thinking, the Sadducees' denial of resurrection stems first from their misunderstanding of Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, when God appears in the burning bush, to Moses. So what exactly do they misunderstand about Exodus chapter 3? Well, uh, they fail to see that Exodus chapter 3 proves resurrection. In Exodus 3, God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham. But of course, when God said that to Moses, God was or Abraham was dead. Abraham's spirit was in Sheol. And when Jesus quotes Exodus 3 to the Sadducees, Abraham is still dead. So then how does this prove resurrection? Well, then we get verse 27. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So Abraham, who is dead, will one day be counted among the living. And how is this possible? Well, according to the logic of verse 27, it's possible because the great I am, the great creator God, is the living God. He's the God of life. He's the giver of life. He's the one who turns the dead into the living. And so the Sadducees' misunderstanding of the scriptures caused them to deny the resurrection. And understand, they're denying the physical bodily 
resurrection of human beings. They're denying the possibility of physical bodily resurrection, that a human being who once was dead and buried could then be raised so that they live again. So there, it's, this isn't about just the spirit of resurrection. That's not the issue at hand. This isn't just resurrection as a metaphor. No, they're denying the physical bodily resurrection. But the Sadducees are not unique in denying the resurrection. In the ancient world, you might think, oh, resurrection, yeah, people, people back then, they believed in resurrection all the time. We, the only reason people now don't believe in resurrection is because of modern science. No, people have always been skeptical of the possibility of resurrection. People in ancient times didn't walk around thinking, well, yeah, resurrection, of course. No, people were just as skeptical of that kind of supernatural claim then as they are post-Darwin. And so, the Sadducees were not unique in denying the resurrection just because they lived in the ancient world. Many people in the ancient world, many different of the religious traditions, but also within Palestine, many people in the ancient world just did not believe in the afterlife. And in this way, the Sadducees were going along with the culture. They were going along with the popular denial of resurrection. Watch how easy this is. Have you ever seen anyone resurrected from the dead? Me either. Obviously, it doesn't exist. I mean, you can dismiss the claim of resurrection in about two seconds. And we see this done today. And it was done in the exact same way in the ancient world. And so the Sadducees were just as influenced by popular culture then as people now who deny the resurrection. The problem, of course, as Jesus is showing us in verse 26 and 27, is that the Bible does teach resurrection from the dead. And of course, in this conversation, it's the Old Testament that they're talking about. And so the Sadducees do not know the Scriptures as Jesus said in verse 24, and that's the problem. And if they had known the Scriptures, not only would they know that Exodus 3 teaches resurrection, but they would also know that, for example, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Elsewhere, we read, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. See, the Sadducees' error stems from the fact that they don't know the Scriptures. Now, they can quote uh, an Old Testament law from Deuteronomy chapter 25, so they know the Scriptures in a way, but they don't know the Scriptures, meaning they don't understand them and they don't believe the Scriptures. Instead of believing what the Bible says, they're influenced by the surrounding culture. And so the Sadducees' first error is that they do not know the Scriptures. Which means if you are going to avoid the error of the Sadducees, you also must know the Scriptures. Not just that you should be able to quote them, though that's important, but that you should understand them, and even more importantly than that, you should believe what Scripture says. And the reason people today don't believe in the resurrection is the same reason the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. It's because they don't know the Scriptures. Their thinking, their living, 
their worldview is not shaped by the message of the Bible. It's not shaped by the promises of the Bible or the Christ of the Bible. Rather, their thinking is shaped by the latest study or the latest fashion or by that racist Charles Darwin or the newest cause. That's what shapes their thinking rather than the scriptures. And so may we at Trinity Reformed Church be a people who are shaped by the scriptures rather than the latest trend. And so the first way for you to avoid the error of the Sadducees is to know the scriptures. The second way for you to avoid the error of the Sadducees is you must know the power of God. We see this in verse 24. The Sadducees' second error is that they don't know the power of God. So it says, verse 24, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And notice that after Jesus mentions the power of God, what does he begin talking about? Well, that's then when he begins explaining about the resurrection. So what action of God do you suppose is most clearly supposed to demonstrate his power? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The action of resurrection is the pinnacle demonstration of God's power. And notice the language in verse 26. It says, as for the dead being raised. In other words, the resurrection is not automatic. People have to be raised from the dead. Be raised by who? Be raised by God. And so resurrection is the result of God's action. Or more to the point, verse 24 and following, it's the result of God's power. You see, some people believe that God made the world, but then they think, but raising someone from the dead, that's too far. I can't believe that. Really? God made the world. He made the Milky Way galaxy. He made human beings. But we think it's too far-fetched to believe that he resurrects the dead. But the resurrection of the dead is the primary demonstration of his power, even more so than the galaxies. And so it is God the Father who has the power to raise the dead. Now, this is made plain elsewhere in Scripture. For example, Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And again, we have to emphasize this, that Jesus is not talking about resurrection in the abstract. It's not resurrection as a metaphor. It's not just the spirit of resurrection in my self-help life. No, this is physical bodily resurrection that Jesus is referring to here. And Jesus has, uh, has talked about resurrection before. This isn't the first time he's discussing resurrection. Jesus has predicted his own resurrection three times already. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. And now here in Mark chapter 12, he's having a, uh, a discussion about it with the Sadducees. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus will not be vindicated by God the Father. Or to put that into the positive, Jesus' resurrection vindicates his ministry, Jesus' resurrection vindicates his teaching, and Jesus' resurrection vindicates his death. 
If you ask me, why do you believe what Jesus said? My answer, because he was raised from the dead. That's the kind of power that I follow. That's why I believe what he said. And so, the Sadducees' second error is that they don't know the power of God. Which means, if you are going to avoid their error, that means you must know the power of God. The reason people today don't believe in the resurrection is the same reason that people then didn't believe in the resurrection. It's because they don't know the power of God. Well, how do, how do you train yourself to know the power of God? I think Scripture has a lot to say on this, and I can't address it exhaustively, but just one thought here that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. How do you train people to know the power of God? Listen to this. He says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. Now, there's a lot going on there in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm not going to get into it, but just notice what he says. Did you hear that? What is the ordinary way that God's people experience the power of God? He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus with the power of the Lord Jesus. You see, we experience the power of God when we are assembled on the Lord's day. This is a regular and ordinary way to train us to know the power of God and thereby escape the mistake of the Sadducees. The reason people today don't experience the power of God in their lives is because they don't assemble on the Lord's day to worship the Lord Jesus and renew the covenant. Their thinking, their living, and their worldview is not shaped by worshiping the Lord during the service. It's not shaped by the liturgy of the church, but rather their thinking, their living, and their worldview is shaped by the liturgy of the world, which leads them to worship themselves usually. And so, may we at Trinity Reformed Church be a people who are shaped by the covenant renewal worship that happens every Lord's Day. You're going to be shaped by one liturgy or another. And if you're not shaped by the liturgy of the church, if you're not shaped by the liturgy of worship that then is distilled down into Monday through Saturday, then you're going to be shaped by a different liturgy. You're going to be shaped by a liturgy that's usually dictated by the culture. And so, the liturgy of worship on the Lord's Day, covenant renewal worship that happens every Sunday, this is supposed to shape you. It's supposed to sanctify you and also transfer to you the power of God. And so, the first way to avoid the error of the Sadducees is to know the Scriptures the second way to avoid the error of the Sadducees is to know the power of God. And then third, the third way to avoid the error of the Sadducees is you must know about the afterlife. You see, the Sadducees' third error is that they don't know about the afterlife. And this entire episode is based on the fact that the Sadducees don't have a proper understanding of the afterlife. Which means if we're going to avoid their error, we have to know something about the afterlife. And so let's consider three questions about the afterlife. Let's start to know something about the afterlife. First question about the afterlife. 
What do people today think about the afterlife? What do people in our culture today think of the afterlife? Well, many don't know what to think, and so they hope and they wish. Some assume there is an afterlife. Others assume there is not an afterlife. Some believe in reincarnation. Some, even, claim to have died, experienced the afterlife, and then they've come back and written best-selling books and sell them to Christians. Books like Don Piper's 90 Minutes in Heaven and Bill Weiss's 23 Minutes in Hell were best-sellers just over a decade ago. These men claim to have experienced the afterlife, then they came back to life to tell others about it, and just so happened to write a best-selling book and make an enormous amount of money. And many Christians read these books. In fact, I remember back to a decade or more ago when these books came out, and I remember having conversations with people to this effect. Hey, have you read the Bill Weiss book? Have you read the Don Piper book? I think this is really proof that God exists and that there is an afterlife. These were the conversations I remember having with people. This was the reason they now believed in God. And this is how they were educating themselves about the afterlife. Many Christians think that these books are reasons to believe in God. And this is, this is how we're going to learn about the afterlife. But you have to understand, church, that these stories are not God's way to teach us about the afterlife. And Jesus makes this explicitly clear in Luke chapter 16 with the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where Jesus says, Luke 16, verse 30, if someone goes to them from the dead, even then they will not repent. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus' point is that if they didn't believe what the Bible said, then even someone coming back and claiming to have died and been resurrected and to tell you about the afterlife, even then they won't believe them. If they don't believe the scriptures, they won't believe that claim. And so, those accounts of people who have died and come back to write best-selling books about the afterlife, that is not the way that you need to learn about the afterlife. And that is not going to convince people of the gospel. This is not God's method to teach us about these things. Well, what do other people believe about the afterlife? Well, others are so absorbed with the life here and now that the thought of a future after death barely even enters into their thinking. Blaise Pascal said of these people that this is by design. They're intentionally distracting themselves from from thinking about such things. The movies give us a fantasy version of what happens after death, usually images that match our wishes for an earthly utopia, only there's a lot of clouds and people we love are all around. But by far, in the United States, the most common view people have of the afterlife, and this is for Christians and non-Christians alike, is they think of the afterlife as primarily a great reunion of family and friends without the problems that hamper happiness. This is by far the most common view of the afterlife. It's shared by Christians and non-Christians alike. 
which should be interesting to us. How did that come to be? And how did this come to be the dominant view of the afterlife in the United States? Well, this view of the afterlife traces back to the book by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps called The Gates Ajar. It was published in 1868. Writing in the aftermath of the many deaths of the Civil War, Phelps constructs a story of heaven as a big family reunion. The main character is named Mary Cabot, and she is reunited with her brother who died during combat. And that was a story that was multiplied across the nation, and that's why it was a bestseller. That book in 1868 is responsible for shaping America's view of the afterlife as being one big family reunion. Ever since that book was published, Americans came to presume their default thought about the afterlife was that the afterlife is about being reunited with loved ones and the afterlife is basically a family reunion. So now ever since in literature and in film, that is how the afterlife is primarily depicted. And understand, this view was not widely held before 1868. And so, let's reset for a moment. What are we doing? We have to understand something of the afterlife to avoid the error of the Sadducees. So our first question, what do people today think of the afterlife? Second question about the afterlife. What should Christians think of the afterlife? The world has their opinion and the church must give its answer. And we must announce our answer about the afterlife to a confused world that is just as deceived on the topic as the Sadducees. The Christian answer about the afterlife centers on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, that if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, then Christians are fools. And I have to admit that in my early 20s, when you go through that stage and you're, that stage and you're, you're questioning everything and you're asking, do I really believe this stuff? There was two or three things that really enhanced my conviction in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those was 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, where Paul argues, if there is no resurrection from the dead... If Christ was not raised from the dead, then Christians are fools. So our understanding of the afterlife begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the second thing accompanying that is the covenant-keeping character of God. You might think, well, why is that an important part of understanding the afterlife? Well, because this is what Jesus emphasizes in verse 26. Look at it again. He says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Notice how God identifies himself. And it's not just here. This is relatively common in Scripture. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when you see that language, that is emphasizing the covenant-keeping character of God. And this is how God identifies himself. And this is how Jesus refers to God here in verse 26. And so, as the living God, God is the ever-present helper and deliverer of his people. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not simply dead and forgotten. Why not? Because God keeps his covenants. 
And so the Christian view of the afterlife starts with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's accompanied by God's covenant faithfulness. And those two things together accomplish the blessed immortality, as Anselm called it, the blessed immortality of the afterlife. In creating a world that would have happened if Adam and Eve had not sinned. And so first question, what do people today think of the afterlife? Second question, what should Christians think of the afterlife? Uh, we're, we're just scratching the surface here, but it starts with the resurrection of Christ and the covenant faithfulness of God. And then the third question, why is there no marriage in the afterlife? And this, of course, is what Jesus is is dealing with here. So why is there no marriage in the afterlife? Well, let's consider verse 25. Jesus says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. All right, we need to understand this. I promise you can understand his logic here. Okay, so in our world now, people die. And so, you look at our world, God made the world, he said to fill the world, have dominion over the world and fill it. Well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to fill the earth in a world where people die? Well, marriage and children coming from marriage are necessary to maintain the population of earth and to increase the population of Earth. As an aside, the population problem is not that there's too many people. The population crisis is that there's not enough people on Earth. But that's a complete side note. We don't have time to get into that. But life in the new heavens and the new Earth is going to be different than the life on the Earth as it is now. Life in the new heavens and the new Earth is life in the renewed global Eden. And that does not require maintaining the human species by having children. Because then everyone will have an immortal, resurrected body. And so, in the new heavens and new earth, Jesus says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Think about marriage. There's a lot of reasons for marriage and purposes of marriage. And, and, and high on that list is children. But in the new heavens and the new earth... We won't need marriages that produce children. And, and also thinking about marriage, remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. He said that marriage is a profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church. So what's the purpose of marriage? Well, there's a lot of purposes for marriage. One of those is to, is to have children. But also, as Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 5, the purpose of marriage is to provide a living and ongoing parable of the real marriage, Christ's relationship with the church, his bride. And so, there will be marriage in heaven, just not the marriage we have on earth. The marriage in heaven is not like the marriage on earth. In this life, one man marries one woman for one lifetime. God invented this. Why? To have children, yes, but also to teach us something about the real marriage. Christ the bridegroom and the church his bride. And so in the new heavens and the new earth, the total 
fulfillment of marriage will be on display such that the parable was no longer needed. The point of marriage, in other words, is eschatological. The marriage in heaven is Christ the bridegroom married to the church as the bride. And this is not a replacement for marriage as we have it now. It's the fulfillment of it. And so we see that resurrection life on the new heavens and the new earth will be different from earthly life. It'll be different as it relates to marriage, as we've just seen. And you know, some people read verse 25, and they read that there will not be marriage in heaven. And maybe they fear that they will be deprived of future life without their spouse. If you've been married to someone for 50 years, it's hard to imagine a life without your spouse. And so some people might read verse 25 and they might get a little nervous. They might be concerned and they might think, without my spouse, how will I be happy? How will I get along? I can't even fathom existing without my spouse. And to that question, we need to remember that we serve a good heavenly father who gives good gifts to his children. Jesus presents a view of eternal life in which marriage between one man and one woman for one earthly lifetime is apparently irrelevant. And that is almost impossible for us to understand from our current perspective where marriage and family are so central and provide a meaningful place. But we must remember that we live now with merely an earthly perspective. Earthly life as we know it now is temporary. And in this life, we live and then we die. And procreation is required for future life. But heavenly life is eternal and therefore marriage and procreation will not be required. Now, notice the key phrase in verse 25. Jesus says that in the afterlife, we are like angels in heaven. The angels do not marry, and the angels do not reproduce. Angels are individual creations. Angels don't have moms and dads. And Jesus teaches that marriage is appropriate for earthly life now, but will be unnecessary in the new heavens and the new earth. And so what about this difference between life now and the afterlife? There are differences as we're seeing. Well, when we focus on the differences, we might forget that heaven is an upgrade, that the new heavens and the new earth is an upgrade. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. You see, the new heavens and the new earth is an upgrade. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so it may be hard to imagine now, but we won't be pining away for the old earthly life in the fallen world, for the old earthly life where we were once married, perhaps. 
Yes, it's true in this fallen world, God, who is a good heavenly father, gives us good gifts and gives us good things. But in the new heavens and the new earth, God will give us better things. You will live in a renewed cosmos with a renewed body that transcends the greatest earthly pleasure. It's a transformed experience of joy in the fullness of Christ for eternity. The relationship between Christ and the church and the covenant of redemption is not a replacement for the love between a husband and a wife on earth and the covenant marriage. No, it's not a replacement of that. It is the ultimate and infinite fulfillment of it. And all of this should remind us that this life, as difficult as it may be at times, as full of trials and hardship that may be in our lives, this life is just the beginning of a cosmic plan of redemption where suffering precedes glory. And so in conclusion, we need to remember, as C.S. Lewis writes in The Last Battle, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, you are a good heavenly Father who gives good gifts to your children. Because those gifts come from resurrection power, we know that the gifts in the afterlife are better even than your gifts on earth. And we entrust ourselves to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.